millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. So, Alice, what have you been getting upset about on Twitter specifically today? I was, I was saying, I was wondering whether or not you got my email about Steve Bannon at the uh, I did. And uh, so tell me why that's riling you up. Well, because surely this man is an intellectual heavyweight of Western philosophical and political thought. It's only right and proper he should go to Oxford and talk. Well, yeah, lol. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. It's just, I just, I'm getting so frustrated by constant Twitter remarks I'm seeing about kind of the conformity of cultures in universities and there's no free speech on campus and all of this bullshit. Sorry, it is genuine bullshit. There's so much conflation of the idea between like, what is it to create a free speech environment in general? And yet, what is it to protest someone's views who you disagree with? Because when you are protesting someone who is as powerful and as influential as someone like Steve Bannon, that power imbalance is there. You can't just go up to them in a pub and just be like, quietly, I think you should kind of not do this. I think you should quell this. I don't think you should be as racist as you are, Steve Bannon. What you have to do is you have to protest in other ways. You have to try and make sure they can't speak. All of these tactics that the suffragettes and Martin Luther King, all these great revolutions used in order to make sure their point of view came across, that the weak could speak to power. And then you just hear this crap about the fact that, you know, there's no free speech on campus. You're sitting there going, no, this is why there's a free speech environment. I I don't understand why the whole conversation has been flipped as to do you respect my right to free speech? Because you can't untangle what the person is saying from their right to say it, because you're going to protest it if you don't like it. And you're going to just agree and conform if you do like it. What you can say is I appreciate the free speech environment that we're in. And it's as much my right to protest what you're saying as it is for you to say it. So I'm just getting really het up over it because it's been going on and on this absolute crap now for what, how many years? Three years? And yet we're just stuck in this stalemate of universities have no free speech. And it's, yeah, so I'm getting annoyed, basically. I always get annoyed when debates go on for too long. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll make sure that our today and it only goes on for 45. How's that? Well, our debate. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, can you do that also for the free speech on campus debate? Can you just end it at 1845? That'd be great. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. 
Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back home in a rather key, to use a British expression, San Francisco. Today we are joined by my favourite senior editor, political editor at Salon. It's Amanda Marcotte in New York there, and I have it that uh, on good authority that she might be leaving that fair city and going to pastures new. And we have our returning friend from the UK, Alice Thwaite. Alice, where are you today? My parents' house in Kent. Good, good. You're in that Brexit-loving county of Kent. On the day when Theresa May is fighting to convince her cabinet that her Brexit deal is the best one for Britain, we ask, after the midterms, just who will run to be the Democratic nominee in 2020. Now, uh, before we insert a little bit of audio, as is uh, the way here, we've decided to pass on uh, the Brexit news today, quite simply because as we are recording the British cabinet is uh, locked in 10 Downing Street and they are debating whether this is actually the best plan for Britain. So, and that's the reason why we're not going to do the most obvious news story because we're going to be overtaken by events with literally whatever we say. He's already laying down odds on who will run for president in 2020. So place your bets. Who's your money on? Trump. Hands down. Sorry, guys. I didn't say who's going to win. I said who's going to run. Oh, everyone in the planet, every Democrat that exists is going to run. There's going to be like 37 people running for president. Okay, and Trump is going to run again? He's not yes. going to be indicted? Whatever oh, happens? if he's indicted or goes to jail, he won't win. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you? Who do you think? You know, I, I read that report and the bookies are saying six to one that Kamala Harris will be the, yeah. the Democratic nominee. And, and I know her and I think she is uberly qualified. But after seeing the misogyny and the sexism with Hillary Clinton, after seeing the racism that was unearthed with President Obama, I can't imagine that this country is ready for a black female president. Well, the women were not to be during the midterms. Right. The women put it over the top for the Democrats. They did, but I, I just, I, I can't imagine that the country, unfortunately, is ready for it. Anna? Honey, everybody I end up voting for ends up losing, so I'm almost about to endorse Trump in hopes I jinx him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually... Think, um, I think the Democrats are going to, you know, come to their senses and uh, nominate Joe Biden. I would, if I were going to put money on it, I would, put, I would go Biden, Gillum, just because why the hell not? Uh, Amanda, in just less than a week, you're going to be eating your turkey dinner with family and friends, and conversations will invariably run to politics. Who are you going to say should run for the Democrats in 2020? I mean, my heart right now is with Kirsten Gillibrand. I think um, she's done the most to really kind of stand out from the pack in the past couple of years. She grasped right away that the way to deal with the Trump administration is to just oppose everything Trump does no matter what, just to flat out vote against all his nominees, vote against all his judicial appointments, vote against all his cabinet members, just anti-Trump across the board. She's been eager to embrace new progressive ideas. Um, She was one of the first senators, I think the first senator to agree that ICE, which is uh, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency in the United States, should be abolished. And she endorsed Medicare for All, which is, you know, a plan for kind of a to either gradually or rapidly introduce single payer into the United States. So, you know, I like Gillibrand. Um, there are many other people I would also like to see. Elizabeth Warren is obviously a great senator. I don't know if she'd be as good as a president. Well, wouldn't she make such a great president 
because she's been somewhat of a, the rock star of the Democrats with her being a, an effective senator, hasn't she? And that's one of the things. I mean, I I would absolutely back her and support her if she ran. Um, my question with her, however, is I think that she's not actually been much in the way of like an organizer or a leader in the way that a president should be. Mm-hmm. I think that she's very good at writing policy and thinking out about new ideas. Sorry, sorry, Amanda, I, I am jumping in. Um, being an organized and a leader hasn't stopped Trump, has it? No, but he's not a very good president either, is he? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let, let's go through this list of some of the runners and the riders before we uh, kind of bring Alice into this. You give me a, a quick thumbs up or thumbs down, which doesn't really work on a podcast. You have to say yay or nay as to whether you think this person will actually run. Cory Booker. Yes. Sherrod Brown. No. Kamala Harris. Yes. Amy Klobuchar. Apparently. Bernie Sanders. Yes. Elizabeth Warren. Yes. Beto O'Rourke. No. John Hickenlooper. Probably. Terry McAuliffe. Doubt it. Deval Patrick. Um, maybe. Uncle Joe. Biden? Yes. (laughs) No. Michael Bloomberg. Um, he'll say that he is and then he won't. Michael Avenatti. Um, he'll say that he is, and then he will basically bow out early in the primary. All right. And, um, there are many more others, but you know, I had to stop this list at some point. Uh, John Delaney of Maryland has declared, and we've got Richard Ojeda of West Virginia, who's also declared. Now this massive list of potential runners, does this underscore democratic strength and optimism or a lack of a clear leader and an ideological direction? I think it's good. Um, I think that um, a lot of choices will dilute some of the the way that the 2016 primary turned into a Bernie versus Hillary battle and people chose their sides and it got very angry and there was a lot of recrimination. I think seeing a lot of people of color and women running will make it so that no one candidate has to stand in for the entirety of bo- of their demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think candidates will be assessed a little bit more on their merits and a little less on, you know, whether or not you think it's the right time for a woman to run for president or whatever. Alice, what does the world want to see in the next US president? What type of person should they be? So I was chatting to a political campaigner actually last week about this. And I think the main problem that the Democrats have is what what unites the Democratic Party right now. And yes, you're right, it's anti-Trump, but that's not a very positive message. And so whatever the next leader is, I have to see something that I can really believe in and can see a future of America that makes me excited and, well, basically just excited about the future. And I'm not sure what that strategy is right now, to be honest. I would like to challenge that a, a little bit because the Democrats in 26, or 2018 had an amazing amount of consistency, no matter whether they were centrist, progressive, even a socialist identified. They all basically led with health care as their issue. And I think that we're going to see going into 2020 that health care is going to continue to be the issue. I think there's a real intensity right now in the Democratic Party to just sort of pull what voters want to hear about and then just run on that. Maybe that doesn't inspire like soaring emotions, but it is showing that they are interested in what the voters want and trying to meet the voters where they're at. 
I mean, mm. it's, it's just about whether or not a healthcare is someone who's from the UK and has had the NHS since, what, 1945, when, or maybe 1948, yeah. Maybe I'm not kind of inspired by that quite so much as someone in America. You know, like the Republicans always are pro-gun. What unites Republicans? It's being pro-gun law. But on the Democratic side, what is it really that unites Democrats in a way that the Republicans wouldn't also say that they care about it? Like Republicans also care about healthcare. They just change the means that they do it. So that's that's why I kind of think to myself, healthcare might not be the ticket that means that all Americans can get really inspired and say, I'm going to come together because the Democrats stand in opposition to the Republicans on this issue. You know, I I think Alice has a point here, uh, Amanda, in that. Um, in effect, President Obama's lasting legacy has been written into the firmament of America now. The very fact that many Republicans in 2018 in the midterms said that they were going to uphold Obamacare, but never called it such. It was the Affordable Care Act. Alice has a point that maybe by 2020, this is a dead rubber. So Democrats can't necessarily say that we're going to save your health premiums and uh, we're going to have expanded Medicaid, etc. Because that battle's actually been fought and won quietly by the Democrats. I think that the reason they continue to run on healthcare when I looked at most Democratic candidates' platforms this time around is that there is a large sense in the United States that while Obamacare was a good first step, it's not enough. I think that Right now, a lot of people are increasingly um, upset with the fact that their only options, if they're middle class, are private healthcare companies until they turn 65 and get to go on Medicare. And I think there's an increasing amount of support among the, you know, not just Democratic voters, but I think the public in general, mm. for a chance to buy a government-sponsored healthcare program and and really see costs come down. I know it's not the sexiest issue, but I just don't see it as a winning issue. It's like it's it's like voting for to use an American phrase, it's voting for motherhood and apple pie. No one's going to kind of come out against that. It needs, I think, in order to do oh. this, it's got to be oh, something. Oh, no, yeah. Alice, you, you're no, kind no, of wrong there. Just I, talking about healthcare in general. Like, everyone wants to be in good health. No one's going to come out and say, do you know what? I really think that so-and-so should die as a result. You, no one's going to say that. That's why I say it's like voting for motherhood <laughs> and apple pie. And Republicans have else. actually said that during um, debates in the past. Yeah. This is a much more contentious issue than may, may be realised. Whilst I think the debate has maybe moved on from... You should die. <laughs> <laughs> so I think come 2020, the debate would have moved on from Republicans saying we're going to uphold your pre-existing conditions and you won't have to be denied health care because of that. That actually what the Democrats can then do is then talk about universal health care. And that is where the battleground will actually be, which means that, as you rightly said, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare actually is something here to stay and actually is a first step towards universal health care. Cool. Call me a skeptic, but I just don't see it as a winning strategy. And I, I could be completely wrong there, but it's just not it's not powerful enough for me. And I want I want to see that whichever candidate comes out of the democratic process being as being a truly inspirational leader who he can actually kind of get these votes and people can get behind him because I really want to see Trump gone in 2020. And that's, I but, guess that's why I'm kind of saying this now is that I just, 
but speak you know i'm from the uk i, I might be completely I, wrong on this i think you're a little bit wrong but you touch on many truths and one of them is you say that you want an inspirational leader and each american president is somewhat of a reaction to what's gone before and maybe uh, what the Democrats need is somewhat of a technocratic president, not somebody with soaring oratory, somebody who can just stand there, physically be a symbol of of a new America. So maybe it is a, it is a woman or somebody of colour, I don't know. But actually, it's just going to get on and do the job. Now, uh, Amanda, we've been talking about the the Democrats and who they might put up. But with the Democrats gaining more seats in any election since 1974 in the midterms, Trump potentially is vulnerable to a challenge from a Republican, maybe somebody like uh, John Kasich or Jeff Flake or even a Mitt Romney. Do you think it's possible that Trump might have a Republican challenger? You know, I wouldn't have said so before today, but a new Monmouth poll came out that showed about... I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was a not insignificant number of Republicans wanted Trump to step down in 2020. <laughs> like, wow. not not the majority by any any measure, but, you know, like a third. Mm-hmm. I was impressed by that because you usually don't see that kind of dissatisfaction with a candidate within a party and or with an incumbent candidate within the party. And especially since it does seem like he's actually gotten more loyalists since he secured the nomination in 2016. So if I was John Kasich or, you know, Jeff Flake, and I had a big ego and aspirations of that sort, I would see that as an invitation to run. I wouldn't agree as a person outside of it that it is because it's still not even the majority. And I think that once Fox News or whoever is done with the challenger, like most Republicans are going to be running away from that person. But I I could see it. I definitely could see a challenge. Again, Amanda, before we come back to Alice, explain why beating a sitting president uh, from from his own party in a primary is a near impossible task. Obviously, Ted Kennedy tried it in 1980, but Trump's numbers are historically low, if you've kind of alluded to, and they're definitely bad amongst non-Republican supporting Americans. Uh, so why is it that the system seems to be uh, rigged against somebody running from the party of the president? Well, what, number one, you have all the power... Uh, you're the head of the party, basically, if you're a president. And everybody is afraid to cross you. And so they're not going to. They believe that your incumbent advantage is such that they're going to want to fight for you so that they get the rewards and the goodies at the end of the campaign, right? Mm-hmm. And second of all, and you know, you have the more name recognition, you have more money, you have everything kind of breaking in your favor. Second of all, um, I think, you know, on a psychological level, it's unwise generally to make voters feel bad about votes they've cast in the past. Mm -hmm. If you voted for Trump in 2016, what a challenger, a primary challenger is going to ask of you is for you to admit that that was wrong. And people don't like to admit they're wrong. So that's just never going to be a good argument. And I don't know a way to run against him without making that argument. Okay. Alice. It seems to me that you want somewhat of a pugilistic uh, nominee for the Democrats, someone who can go toe-to-toe with Trump. Uh, Would that be the best strategy? Or after the um, 
you know, the rancor of the last campaign and his last two years of presiding over the United States. Wouldn't it be better if the Americans had a cleaner and calmer campaign in 2020? I was, I was just really reflecting, actually, on what you said about having a technocratic president. And I actually think that what a lot of what we've seen in the past four or five years has been a railing against the technocracy that existed in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and so I think reverting back to something that was a bit more technocratic, i.e. we all know what the aim is and the only debate there is is to talk about how we operationalize it, you know, how to bring science mm. into that kind of thing, I think is completely the wrong approach. I'm kind of with philosophers and writers like Chantal Murph and uh, Sladol Zizek on these issues that actually we do need uh, an overarching vision on the left that really brings together all of Western democracies. And I don't see us kind of sitting back, especially in an era where there was such a high turnout for the midterms of sitting back and kind of putting up someone who's quite stale, quite boring, quite technocratic is going to be a winning strategy at all. I do think it has to be someone who inspires, who is charismatic, you know, so, you know, like Obama, really, you know, like, like Bill Clinton, these people who really can kind of inspire a nation. So yeah, I am looking for a vision from the left. I am looking for something that can kind of and I, I mean this, and it sounds way too polemic, but you can save Western democracy. And, and quite frankly, a scientist who's a little bit dull is not going to do that. Mm. Goodness, the next Democratic nominee needs to save Western democracy. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually being serious about that, really. I agree with you that things are worse now than they were a year ago. And two years from now, God help us, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that Western democracy needed saving four or five years ago as well, because I think that we were stuck in this kind of technocratic slump about the fact, you know, when I was a student from 2008 to 2011, there was virtually no dissent. There was no protest. There was no idea of what was coming, really. There was no idea that you had to engage in politics. So I actually do still think that four or five years ago was the worst time in Western democracy. But now we've kind of reached that trough We've reached the lowest point. There needs to be someone who can bring us out of it and restore the values that Western democracy has had in the past and will have in the future. And maybe, you know, 2020 is a bit soon. Maybe we can carry on for another four or five years. But I'm just going to get big now. Russian disinformation and Chinese cyber attacks are huge right now. We need an American president who's going to stand up for Western democracy because those huge powers of Russia and China are just way, way, way too big and they will start to take away our ideology. And I, I really do mean it. We need someone who's charismatic. And maybe 2020, that would be great. But if it's not 2024, I'm going to say I think we're fucked. Um, but, but it's more than just charisma, though, isn't it? You need someone who, who's charismatic and has got, got a vision, but also is a political operator. And one of the things you could say about Obama is he was a great campaigner and the symbolism of Obama was manifest. Just looking at the man, he said so much about America, about the idea of America, and he had the sore in oratory. But you could argue that when the Senate and the Congress was against him, he actually was not the politician that America needed, you could argue. Um, so Amanda, Right, so we're going to save Western democracy in the in the next two years. A leader will emerge from this democratic. Hopefully. <laughs> now, Trump lost the popular vote in 2012, but he run the Electoral College in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And the Democrats' margin in the national House vote in the midterms is seven points up 
which is five more than Hillary Clinton's two-point margin in 2016. So looking at the electoral map for 2020, are we going to find this savior of Western democracy campaigning hard in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan and Wisconsin? Or does that mean that the Democratic candidate needs to be a moderate because those will be the battleground states? Um, I don't think they need to be a, a moderate. I mean, when you look at who racked up Democratic wins in those states, uh, in places that Clinton didn't win, mm-hmm. um, they were just as likely to be progressive as they were to be moderate. You know, uh, Whitmer in Michigan would be a really good example. You know, she's really on the left. I, I don't see any correlation between ideology necessarily and and winning in those states. Sherrod Brown would be another good example. I mean, he's an incumbent, but he's very far to the left of the Democratic caucus, and he wins handily in Ohio. I think, you know, so much of politics is about optics and culture and not about policy. Most people couldn't tell you what their candidates did for if you paid them. Um, so I do think that it, it really does matter how you campaign, what candidate you put up, and if they are someone that the people in that state sort of see themselves in. Mm. Alice, uh, do you think our saviour, our Western saviour, um, <laughs> can be... It needs to be serious, Royfield. <laughs> I'm being totally serious. I, I actually, in large part, actually agree with you. I'm all for a charismatic politician. I, I absolutely am. My wrists are duly being slapped. And if you don't think that I'm seriously taking your point, I absolutely I absolutely do. Because as I said, I actually heartily sympathise with your point of view. You know, if you just look at UK politics, specifically Theresa May, Theresa May is boxed into a tight corner because of the numbers in the House of Commons that are against Brexit, the MPs that actually are against it. Then you have the MPs that are against it, but believe that the uh, the referendum was the will of the people. Then you have the hard Brexiteers. Then you have the utter Remainers and stuff, etc., etc. She's boxed into a corner. She could have come out and spoken directly to the British people in special prime minister's broadcasts and actually explained her strategy. That would have taken not that much guts, but a certain amount of leadership and actually charisma and strength of belief actually to do that. And she could have, I'm not saying it would have been easy for her, but she could have helped this whole malaise, confusion, car crash that we've had uh, of, of British politics in the last two years. So I'm all for charismatic it's politicians. Not, and I do I'm believe... Also, I'm not just saying char- charisma for Christmas sake. I'm also saying like a genuine vision, like a genuine vision. No, no, absolutely. And, and she could have laid out her vision I I do fundamentally believe in in what you've said so my wrists are slapped Uh, I'm behind you in this Alice I think it's just because I hang out with sarcastic people in pubs all the time so I just kind of hear someone say western saviour and I think well they must be must be taking the piss so I I also concede (laughs) I also concede well all right now this democratic field is going to be incredibly wide and open could we have another um I was going to say left of centre, left field, there's the word I was searching for, left field candidate. Could we or should we have, let's say, a businessman, somebody from the tech field or, or even a celebrity run for high office? And, and maybe has the election of Trump opened up politics, not just in America, but also in the West too, 
non-politicians actually to run for high office? No, um, I think that a lot of people thought that maybe last Amanda, year. Amanda, right? you're not Alice. Oh, was that? Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought, I Amanda's, <laughs> Amanda's probably got a better, a better because yeah. Well, I, well, I tell you what, Alice, you start. Amanda, then you you take up the cudgels. Okay, afterwards. based on what Amanda said, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I think that you might have thought that last year, but this year, absolutely not. No, um, <laughs> I don't know in the US, like in Britain, obviously, it's pretty much inconceivable that you'd be able to do that because you have to be an MP first, whereas the president, obviously, mm. you can. You don't necessarily have to. I, I I don't really know what the mood is in America right now. So yeah, Amanda, what what are your thoughts? <laughs> Amanda, what's the mood in America right now? <laughs> um, I think people who think that Oprah Winfrey or Mark Zuckerberg are going to run for president, and they might, but that they have a chance, um, just don't understand that the Democratic and Republican parties aren't mirror images of each other. They're they're fundamentally different in the way they're structured and the way that the people that vote for them think about these things. I think that what would happen is somebody like that would run and they would just get trounced in the like in, in Iowa because Democratic voters take this very seriously in a way I think Republican voters sadly do not. <laughs> Mm. Okay, so let's just quickly end up end up with you, Alice. So, the Democratic Party is it going to be enthralled to its base? You've given us some hints as to your true feelings of this. Are we going to have some super duper progressive, aggressive candidate like a better O'Rourke, somebody with a telegenic smile, and then all of a sudden we're going to find that they're too far left of the American people? Come. Uh, the presidential run. I, I honestly think this is the wrong question to be asking because I think that the whole ideology just needs such an overhaul that it's not going to sit on this spectrum of like being left or right. So I, I just I think that whoever whoever is going to come along can't be like oh you, you can't you shouldn't be able to pigeonhole whoever it is as being kind of left or centre or moderate or whatever. They have they have to tear up the rule book in the same way that Donald Trump tore up the rule book. And I do think that these distinctions between left and right wing, this kind of continuum spectrum just aren't, aren't helpful anymore. So that does answer your question, but also kind of in an Alice Thwaite way by rejecting the question entirely. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, that's a very Mick Wright way. He always rejects the very premise of all of my questions as well. So thank you for being the heir to his mantle there, Alice. Amanda, let's have your closing comments on my probably ill-formed and, and out-of-date <laughs> Okay. I, I think that um, while obviously the left-right kind of way of thinking of things is, is you know, oversimplifying, I, th- I do think it's actually becoming more true that American voters sort of land somewhere in that scale, and, and particularly when it comes to party politics. While there's a lot of independent voters who are all over the map and what they see, I think our primary system means that the candidate of both parties is going to reflect the will of the voters. And the political science evidence suggests that the kind of people that vote in Democratic primaries are pretty uniform ideologically. They're pro-choice. They're pro-social safety net. They want to expand health care, government health care. They want to raise the minimum wage, that sort of thing. So I think that's what we'll be looking at come 2020. Cool. All right. 
and uh, with thoughts of 2020, we now move to, is it uh, 1918 or 2018 with thoughts and feelings on remembrance, loss and bet. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I have no disrespect at all for soldiers doing their job or for the past. Uh, I mean, every year of my life, I remember, remember the First World War. Mm. Um, and I just think at a certain point, you have to say, enough is enough. We don't remember the Crimean War, the Boer War, the, the Napoleonic War. We're the only country that does this year after year after year. Uh, we ought to, I mean, the art is forgetting as well as remembering. Um, most of the wars in Europe have been caused by too much remembering the past, too many grievances. Um, and I think I've got no disrespect for, for what, what's going on today. The question is, when do you stop? Um, do you literally go on looking at the... the, the, the it's, always, it's always about the Germans, the hated Germans. Um, we have to see, look to the future, not the past. The, the constant reference back to remembrance, when no one alive can remember. Uh, this is an artificial state-sponsored remembrance. Is it not right and proper that we educate young people about the magnitude of sacrifice made? Uh, primary school children are being asked to reenact trench warfare. Um, this is not history. Um, it, it's a very peculiar sort of remembrance of a particular horrific event, largely because it was so, so horrific. Okay. I think you're quite right. You should remember um, the past. But remembering is also about forgetting. Alice, is the power of Remembrance Day, Remembrance Sunday, lessening in the UK? Is the Cenotaph losing its power to inspire and invoke memories of fallen young men? Who? I, I think I have got a controversial opinion on this, but I don't know if I've got a controversial opinion on this because I'm in the Brexit land of Kent right now and I'm not <laughs> kind of in my metropolitan elite. So obviously I think it's really important that we respect our armies and the young people who who do go out to war because it is such a huge sacrifice mm. and they don't have the resources right now and it's it's really hard. Having said that about kind of the present day, and I do think it's really important to maintain a defense budget, especially because most of it is kind of going to disinformation warfare, which I kind of spoke about before, information warfare. I think that the, the obsession that the British have with the world wars now is, is kind of getting a bit outdated, to be honest. I think that more and more of us are, 
and it's certainly in my generation starting to realize just how poorly the Brits did behave. I mean, marking the end of first the First World War is really important, but I just refuse to use any sort of World War imagery in my writing. I try and not use it as examples. I try to not hold on to it as like the bastion of the British Empire that was so great and fell. This to me seems a bit outdated for kind of moral reasons and not just for oh, isn't it sad that we don't remember what the world wars are like? I think it's good to forget in that respect. Mm. I believe that the power of the cenotaph is definitely waning. In my span of of being a a human being on this planet, uh, Remembrance Sunday in the UK was a much bigger thing and more solemn and actually just meant much more than it does now. And if you'd have said to me five years ago, that at the 100th Remembrance Day, that it would be very much like the 73rd or the 87th, I would have been very surprised. I thought that we would have had very much a national occasion of togetherness, but it was just another Remembrance Sunday, and it's 100 years. So again with you, Alice... I I was going to say, though, I do think that a lot of my kind of family who, you know, in previous generations, they all went to Remembrance events. My family went to church. They don't usually go Mm. to church. The way that I respected it, to be honest, is I was in the gym and I got off my treadmill. So I, I, you know, I do think it's important to do that kind of thing. But I didn't kind of mark the occasion in any in any special way than I would have done normally. I don't know, American listeners, we in in Britain on the eleventh day of on the eleventh hour, everyone stops around the country, and it's quite crazy when you are in public spaces like the gym. You know, everyone knows that this is what you do. So I do, th- I do think it's a generational thing. I think that, you know, my parents born in the 60s, they really felt the after effects of the war and they knew of uncles who had died and, and those uncles weren't just kind of historical people in their family. They were actually real people because they were real people to their parents. So I do think it, there was a sense of togetherness, but perhaps not in our specific kind of area of society trying not to say identity politics or anything like that but you know what I'm trying to get at in our specific kind of community no no definitely Amanda it's a very middle class or very typical uh, British state to be in not to know anyone who's in the army our army is so much smaller than yours and and it doesn't dominate British culture in the way that the US military seems to and doesn't have the kind of widespread open affection um, why is it that American society, American culture, so embraces outward displays of affection towards its military? Why do you think this is? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I mean, the ugly answers that were continue to be more imperialist, while I think that's not, it strikes me as less of the fashion there. I may be wrong on that. <laughs> But, you know, we've had a lot of serious armed conflicts in the past few decades. It it was actually kind of sad. My grandfather uh, passed um, in May. He was a veteran, though he didn't really see much in the way of action. He had a military funeral. And as we're leaving, my grandmother, who's got dementia and doesn't hold back, as much as she used to. <laughs> she just started ranting about how she feels like her whole life it was just one war after another. You know, she saw World War II, she saw the Korean War, she saw the Vietnam War, she saw the Iraq War. She just feels like there's always a war. And she, you know, she seemed angry about it, which kind of surprised me. But I think that that's just part of it is there's a lot of pressure to sort of show support through these wars, for these wars. And that has manifested in support for the veterans 
Mm. Alice, I'm doing a little bit of reading about this, and Susan Moore, the Guardian oh. columnist, said that remembrance should be a private act and not a public display. Do you believe it should be thus? Oh, that's that's a really interesting question, actually. Uh, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be either, really, because it always depends on what you're remembering, doesn't it? Because I think I think because we do remember Wilfred Owen, we we remember the absolutely unnecessary loss of life that did happen in the First World Wars. That has to be something of public remembering, but private remembering mm. is all to do with your personal feelings around grief, really, isn't it? So each serves its purpose. I wouldn't like to say only one is is necessary and even, even that one is, is superior to the other. But that's based on mm. me reflecting on that for all of 30 seconds. But it is a very interesting question. Large majorities um, in eight Western countries are surveyed by the Pew Research Centre say they trust the military more than any other government institution. And some 80, 80% of Americans say that they have confidence in the military to act in the best interests of the public. Is it right, normal, proper that citizens of self-governing societies where politicians who will power are viewed with suspicion, that the vast majority of citizens don't re- have never really served, but they trust it more than any other institution? Is that right, proper and normal or should we be slightly concerned about that, Alice? What do you reckon? I'm very concerned by hearing that, actually. And it just strengthens my belief that Hollywood should stop doing war heroic movies and should start making other political institutions a little bit more upstanding and proper. Because that is a very concerning thing to hear, because we do not want to have a military coup in the future that is welcomed by Western democracies. If we're talking about you know, the health of Western democracies... My God, that would be a killer, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, that, that really, that really does concern me. And if there are any film directors out there who are thinking of doing another world war or war movie, just don't do it. Please don't do it. I've had enough of them. <laughs> uh, what do you reckon, Amanda? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, in the United States, and I'm sure you know, in most Western democracies, the military is supposed to be under civilian command. But in the United States, that's increasingly not true and in a very worrisome way. You know, Barack Obama got criticized a lot for his policies in terms of fighting the war on terror. But the blunt fact of the matter was he actually spent his entire administration battling a lot of pressure from Pentagon officials who are too powerful. At the end of the day, um, you know, I think a even slightly less dovish Democrat would have done a lot more because what happens is the military is so used to being powerful. They're so used to getting their way on everything that it, it just sort of has a, a, a force of its own. And the president often stands down to it. And it's, it's a frustrating thing. Do, do you know what I'm also thinking? Because this is also very much UK politics, but someone like Johnny Mercer, who's currently the MP for Plymouth, ex-military, Tom Tuganat, um, MP for Tunbridge and Walling, ex-military, they're kind of being seen as the new future of the, the Conservative Party. And I would be very concerned if either of them became Prime Minister in any sort of way. 
So it's not even like belief in in military institutions. So worried, being worried about a coup, it's also being concerned that the people who come out of this institutions aren't necessarily nuanced enough. Yes, they are great people in their own way, but they they have a very particular view about discipline, about power, about all of these various different things. And they don't really tolerate kind of consensus or have kind of a nuanced opinion on things. So also in that kind of regard, from a soft point of view, that kind of does concern me because uh, I really don't want to see Johnny Mercer becoming leader of the Conservative Party because, frankly, I just don't think he's bright enough. So that's another side to it as well. There's another um, historical difference between our two countries, which I've only just kind of thought about now. And I didn't when I was formulating the questions, didn't think about it. But America does have a tradition, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing at all, of having um, ex generals as presidents, as the head of state. Obviously, it starts with Washington. You've had Eisenhower. You've had Grant. Just three off the top of my head. Whereas in Britain, we've only had one, the Duke of Wellington. Right? We don't generally uh, decorate our victorious generals with with high office and I've no idea why that is no idea thoughts anyone what's interesting is it's kind of a mixed result from that you know it just shows how it's so difficult to predict these things Eisenhower was more moderate than most of the Republican Party at that time because mm. um, he, he could he, like the Democrats wanted him to run for them didn't they um I think so I mean I it's you know, I, I don't want to like blow smoke up the man's ass, but I think he was kind of an apolitical figure in a lot of ways. And that meant that he had a, a different kind of politics than most of his party. Ulysses Grant was actually a good president. <laughs> so so there you go. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> mm. and, and, it, and it's interesting that Eisenhower who was you know, the supreme allied commander, victorious just somewhat um, seven years before he became president, railed against the military-industrial complex, didn't he? No, he said it, this was dangerous, that there are, uh, to go and back up um, your point, Amanda, saying that the military was actually too powerful and was self-perpetuating in terms of creating conflict and creating arms and, and he railed against it and that whole expression the military industrial complex comes from eisenhower you know so it does and and i don't know much enough about the history of this but i think it is worth noting that he served under you know a civilian president who won the war so mm. he probably went into office having a good opinion about a society where civilian control of the military was predominant also before people email in i remember president jackson fought in the battle of new orleans who also was a president of the united states uh let's Terrible just president. <laughs> yeah the, <laughs> yeah the proto trump in in many ways let's just send one one last question throw it out to whoever wants to answer do we forget the contribution of women in previous conflicts on veterans day and remembrance sunday it seems very male to me when I think about all the optics of it. I don't think we did this year. I actually, for the first time, saw a lot of women's involvement this year. But I remember kind of like parading past the women, like, um, I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, how much the women did mm -hmm. for war. I also found out horrendous statistic last week that apparently 15,000 women after the First World War were put in mental asylums for hysteria because they had had too much power during the World War. And then when the men came back, they couldn't figure out how, what to do with all these bolshy women. 
So there's a lot of debates and and agenda setting that's been put out there that has to do with women in war that possibly hasn't come before. So I'm not saying it's equal, but I'm saying it's getting better. Good, good. And on that thoughtful note, why don't we go to our takeaways of the last seven days? Right. So we're going to put politics behind us. We're not going to rail about Steve Bannon speaking in Oxford, although maybe we could talk about uh, the joys of moving to Philadelphia. I don't know. Let's talk about things which have inspired us, made us think and made us ponder about what it is to be human in 2018 in the last seven days. Amanda, over in New York, go first. (laughs) <laughs> it's been it's been tough. I've been really busy, um, but I, I saw the uh, movie "The Only Lovers Left in the World" last night, and it's a Jim Jarmusch movie about with Tom Hiddleston and um, Tilda Swinton playing mm-hmm. very ancient vampires trying to sort of survive in a modern world. And I can't recommend it enough. What a what a delightful movie. Um, it, it really had a lot of interesting things to say about art, being a fan. I, I, I know that's like a, a kind of odd thing to say, but it, if you watch it, it, it would make sense that the question of like whether or not people that are obsessive fans of music or art or anything, whether or not they are helping or whether or not their obsessions can become vampiric, you know? <laughs> And, and I, it doesn't really answer the question, but I think it, it raises some interesting questions. So highly recommend the movie. I haven't heard of this film at all. How has it escaped me? This is an indie film that came out a few years ago. Jim Jarmusch, he just does whatever he wants. You, you see him occasionally on the streets of New York here. He's hard to miss. He's like a billion feet tall and has like this huge like shock of silver hair. Mm-hmm. So unlike I think a lot of celebrities that you might walk by on the street and not notice, you see him every single time. (laughs) Uh, Alice, over to you. I've got a very simple one, actually. I, uh, I'm a huge fan of cartography and uh, of maps, and I used Stop to go it. to quite a lot of digital maps. Stop. I knew I liked oh, I you. Them. I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not thinking about my collection of uh, of, eight, of 17th century maps of London. Oh, my God. No, not 17th, 18th century, 18th century. I want a 17th century. I just went the wrong way around there, but, yeah. And as soon as I start earning some more money, I can't wait to add to it. But yeah, I, I love I love cartography because it kind of just because we can't really make sense of the physical world ourselves because it's just so enormous. Mm-hmm. So we condense it down to these small sizes and those small sizes then become representations of the physical world that we believe to be absolutely true. So I just really love that kind of relationship that man has with nature through cartography. And um, my little takeaway is just I always like knowing what's going on with Google Maps because Google Maps really is at the epicenter of geopolitics in many regards. So I don't know if you're familiar, but they put different, depending on where your IP address is, they put different borders up according to what that nation state says are the correct uh, borders. I did know this. I did know this. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that they've just done, which we, we commented on before the show, is that they've just added the curvature of the globe when you zoom out of a Google Map. And that in itself is really interesting because it might start meaning that we don't start discounting places like Africa as being quite small countries when actually they're enormous. Mm. 
I just think that's quite an interesting development by Google Maps. And uh, I'd encourage anyone to kind of look, look at Google Maps and think about what representation it gives of, of geopolitics and of, of the environment in general. You know what? You've always been my favourite contributor. I'm sorry, Amanda. I'm just keeping it real now. <laughs> now I understand the reason why, Alice. So, so, oh, I tell you. Right, you know, you talk about 17th century, 18th century maps, right? There are two things, right? 18th, 17th century is really old. That's seriously old. There are so few of those, but yes, carry true, on. true that. But but you do get the <laughs> yeah. kind of the late Regency period. You start getting those those maps, and yeah. and it's really fascinating uh, looking at them where there isn't like a Regent Street because you know Regent Street is yeah. a late Regency period, and you go bloody hell, you can't recognise London. Uh, so one so of my, my super. My favorite- Mm, oh, I was going to say my favourite two maps. I've got an 1818 and an 1838 of London. And the guy who clearly bought it in 1818 couldn't keep up with all the building work that was going on. He was drawing the bridges on. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's clear, well, clearly one of these things. It was such an expensive item. Mm. And you'd be really pissed off if you bought a map in 1818, wouldn't you? Yeah, because yeah. that is just yeah. before they cut Regent Street. Oh, it was round about... It, it, Trafalgar Square wasn't there yet. They hadn't got Kingsway, you know, which goes down. Kingsway is the road down from Hoburn the canals weren't up and around yet you it's, it's just incredible to you. Uh, if you if really into cricket Lord's Cricket Club moved during that period to cope with the uh, with the houses that were being built in northwest London yeah it's great it really is great well listen <laughs> I'm gonna make a really good host link now because my superpower right is that I can look at less of a like a city map of London and give you the exact year because really? because it gets it gets tricky but definitely a political map of the world anywhere from 1000 AD I'm within 15 years of when that map is supposed to have been created so because you know I know the the fall and the rise of the Holy Roman Empire I know when the Italian city-states became independent all that kind of wonky stuff when Spain becomes one country under Ferdinand and Isabella so I can look at a, a map and let's say if it's 1315 I can go right Hungary's independent it's not part of Austrian Hungary not part of the Habsburg domains I'm within a 15 year period and the later that map is representing I can get it down to three years that's uh, impressive it's my superpower yeah. <laughs> there's an amazing map just to keep the whole map thing going which I'll dig out and put a link in the show notes uh, which I saw which is human cartography and it's a map of the world and it's 3d so you can spin it around and uh like new york where where you are of course amanda is just this total mountain because it's the amount of people that live there and so you go over a map of the united states and all europe or wherever and it feels flat and all of a sudden you'll come to new york and there's a massive mountain there and it's to do with the populations and, and it's a beautiful thing to behold and you can spin it around and whatever so so my superpower would then lead me on to say that of course the passing of stan lee um happened this week mm. and like many people my childhood was in large part formed by the characters which he created but i wanted to just say say the obvious there is something really strange and peculiar in a nice way about being English and black in the 1970s 
And one of the unifying things, if you were a boy, was actually Marvel Comics. And I believe the African-American experience isn't too dissimilar. There's something about feeling slightly other that you connected to superheroes. Obviously, it was a world before computer games and other kind of distractions. So the power of comics was was much more visceral back then. But it's something, as I've got older... I know that if I meet an African-American male of a certain age or a British black man of a certain age, we always have um, an innate knowledge of Marvel superheroes. And DC to a lesser degree in the UK. DC was never so big. Uh, And it's something about being other and and seeing that recognised through Stan Lee's creations. So I just wanted to throw that into the mix as something uh, which never really gets reported on and but really my takeaway of the last seven days is just actually just how lovely people actually are and something gets unreported i think this is maybe more of a canadian thing because i've just come back from canada uh, than a british thing but maybe amanda you can tell me that americans do this as well I've gone to a couple of drive-throughs, gone gone to drive-throughs a couple of times, shall we say, at Tim Hortons, and I once went to a McDonald's. I had the kids in the back of the car, they're like, Dad, 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 want fries, want fries. Pulled up to the drive-through and went to pay, and the teller told me, No, the car in front has already paid for you. This has happened more than once. And whenever I remark on this to a Canadian, they go, Yeah, we, we do that quite often. You're in a good mood. And you just say, right, I'm putting down $30 or whatever it is for the next two or three cars. Wow. Yeah. No, it's Canadian. They're just the nicest people in the world. I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's just a beautiful thing. And you just go, oh, and and, and then the other, as I said, the other lovely thing about it is when you then remark on it, somebody just paid for it. They go, yeah, we do that all the time. It's like not a big deal. <laughs> like, what? So, anyway, that's my takeaway of the week. Just uh, how lovely Canadians are. Um, <laughs> right, Amanda, why don't you tell us what you've been up to on social media, where people can find your wondrous work? I, I'm a writer for Salon.com, so you can always find me there. And I'm on Twitter at my name, Amanda Marcotte. Alice Thwaite, over to you. Uh yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Alice Elthwaite, and I'm doing more and more writing for Drugstore Culture, which is a new publication, which I would check out. Cool, right. And my name's Royfield, and you can qu- quite simply find me at Royfield on Twitter, though there's not much point in following me there because I never talk about politics. It's more just like what comes into my mind and pictures of my family, really. Though, increasingly, I'm doing more things on Instagram, just taking pictures because I've got one of these new iPhones and bloody hell, the camera's really good. Um, you can follow us where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show on Twitter and one day, eventually, maybe I'll get round to sorting out our Facebook page quite simply you can just type in mid-atlantic show to find us on facebook though i do love an email so why don't you email me at royfield at gmail.com you can kick me up the backside just like amanda has and analysis has done in this episode and say you're an ass man get your acting gear you should be a much better host or you can actually compliment me if you want but one thing you really can do is go and write us a review on a podcatcher of your choice because uh, that's a good thing to do and it means that more people then get to listen to the show um that's us we are mid-atlantic show be nice to each other because being nice is good and that does translate into politics doodaloo bye-bye you pair were fucking awesome that was the best ever (laughs) well done
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.